we're doing, where we're studying God's Word, and I hope that you're getting something out of it that helps you. So if you'll open your Bibles tonight to uh, Philippians chapter 4, uh, we're looking once again at verse number 20 of this fourth chapter, and this is my fourth attempt to finish this verse, and uh, we are going to finish it tonight, although uh, I do believe we could go on for weeks and weeks and weeks just talking about this one verse. I mean, the underlying premise of everything that uh, I teach from this pulpit can be traced back to Philippians 4, verse number 20, and verses just like it that we find throughout the Bible. The whole ministry of our church is wrapped up in this one underlying principle, and that is the glory of God. And so every doctrine that we teach, every activity that goes on in the church, every worship service is for that It's for the glory of God. And it seems like that ought to be a very obvious principle to us, uh, for us. Uh, We really ought not to dispute that in any way. But we find out that every little disturbance that there is in a church, whether it's a heretical doctrine or whether it's a problem between two members, a little spat that goes on, or whether it's gossip or any other thing like that, that is because that we replace God's glory with our glory. We're trying to be self-satisfied in looking to ourselves rather than to God. And then I also believe that there are many churches that speak about the glory of God, and often they will pay lip service to it, but in their practice and in their theology, it seems like they really don't believe that they ought to do it. I mean, when you teach doctrines that promote self-will and you insist upon free will to be more important than God's will, then you have supplanted God's glory with man's glory. And so I truly do believe that if we desire to promote God's glory, it'll keep us out of a lot of trouble. It'll keep us out of a lot of division and doctrinal strife. It'll take care of many, many practical problems that we have in the church. So Paul makes this grand doxological statement in verse number 20, and it comes after the contemplation of the abundance of God's provision. Of God's provision. This is the great doctrine of, of God's providential care that he's been considering. And so with praise, he says in verse number 20, Now unto God and the Father be glory. To unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, my attempt in the last three sermons on Philippians 4.20 was to list for you ten reasons why I think that we ought to give God the glory. And I'm very well aware that ten reasons are an insufficient number to list all of the reasons why that we should. And I'm not even sure I know all the reasons why we give glory to God. But uh, these ten, I think, point us in the right direction and help us to think a little bit when we come down to this verse Uh, to see why Paul would would make such a statement as this. And there are no statements made in Paul's writings that are not, uh, just don't have some good doctrine that's behind them. Every one of them is important. He doesn't add anything. He, He doesn't use filler verses when he's trying to write these letters to the churches. So this is a very important verse for him. And so he breaks out with that praise and he says, you know, God deserves all the glory. Now, I've been able to get through six of the reasons in those uh, three messages, and rather than preach all of that again, I just want to list those for you tonight. So don't worry if you see all those blanks on your listening sheet. Are we going to be here till 12 o'clock? No, we won't. Uh, I'm just going to list those first reasons that uh, I gave you, and if you weren't here to hear all of it and you don't know all the, the stuff that goes behind that, get a copy of the messages and you can listen to those later. But here are the six reasons that we've discussed so far, and we'll just list those. The creation of the Father, the creatures of the Father, the commission of the Father, the choice of the Father, the compassion of the Father, and the communication with the Father. 
Now, I have about 30 pages or so of explanation behind those six reasons, so I just don't have time to talk about those tonight. But let me just say what, I have, what I've done here is I've sort of broken these reasons up into two different groups. And the first group, if you remember, were the first four, and those are reasons that are determined outside of us. They're determined outside of time. Uh, they require no personal interaction on our part. But the next six reasons are, are more personal. For example, when we talked about the compassion of the Father, uh, that's something that I experience on a very personal level. And communication with the Father, that's that's God granting me the privilege of talking with Him in prayer and uh, just giving God reverence and in friendship, being able to speak with God. And that is, of course, very personal. So God deserves all the glory for the way that He interacts with us, uh, those that He loves on a very personal level. So I want to continue with that vein as we look at the last four this evening, and we are going to finish this tonight. And so we glorify God for all these eternal plans and purposes that God has, and that in the eternal uh, scheme of God, he is no, not so far outside of us and not so far away from us that he hasn't included us in his plans and purposes. So we come down to number seven of the list of reasons to glorify God. So here's our seventh one, and that is the care of the Father. Now, this particular one probably accords most closely with the theme that we have in this part of the text because the context of this is the providential care of God. I mean, that's what prompted the whole outburst of Paul. He'd just been reviewing uh, uh, the way that God had used the Philippian church and, uh, as an instrument of providence towards him. And so he's thinking about that, and I don't know what happened to the sound there, but... Uh, We'll get it back in a minute. But he's thinking about that. He's thinking about that providence, and that's what caused this outburst of praise. Now, if we look back at Romans chapter 11, we find there that Paul praised and glorified God in verse number 33 of that chapter, and that was because he had been reviewing God's covenant uh, with Israel. And although he says that God has brought the Gentiles into a covenant also, he doesn't, uh, for God doesn't forget the original promise that he made to Israel. And so when Paul thought about that, he broke out into a doxology. And so you go into many different places of Scripture where Paul writes, and there are very sublime thoughts that just cause him for a moment to stop, and in a moment he just gives God gives God praise. Now, in this particular text, the reason for it is God's care. He had devoted himself to being a bondservant of Christ, and in that capacity, he was willing to endure anything that God threw at him. Now, he knew that even though circumstances were tough, things were going wrong and things were going badly, uh, that still was not a proof of any diminishing providence of God. He saw the big picture. And he saw that God has a plan that's bigger than one man, a plan bigger than one people, a plan even bigger than one era. And how Paul would fit into that plan and work into that plan would be by the grace of God and that God would give him all the grace that was needed to do the work that he was called to do. Now, I believe that is a very good reason for us uh, to marvel at the way that God works and to give him to glory because God sees through all the contingencies that are happening and God uses all of these different things to bring about the desired effect. And so a church planted in Philippi, that was not an accident because at some point in Paul's ministry, God was going to use that church to be a blessing to him. And so God was going to bring that church back into his overall plan for Paul. 
Now, Paul was probably unaware that while he was in Rome, Epaphroditus had been sent from the Philippian church, and he was doing a diligent search throughout the city of Rome looking for Paul in order that he might deliver this aid. Paul probably didn't know that. Now, he did know that God had some plan. God was going to deliver him or, or supply his need in some way. And so this need, or this uh, answer to his need, came from a church that was very far away from him at a time when communication was, was not so easy, at a distance that wasn't easily traversable. The support came at the exact moment that it was so badly needed. Now, the day that I was working on this message was uh, just after uh, Brother Melvin Jones was here with the bookstore. And uh, if you were here, you remember that on that Sunday morning during our Sunday school class, uh, he gave a little bit of history of, of Brian Baptist Church and about Harry Buer, who founded this church. And I thought that what he had to say was, was quite interesting to find out uh, how Harry Buer got his start and then came here. And uh, if you remember, he told us that Harry Buer was... Uh, in a Sunday school class uh, in the Central Valley. A church there in the Central Valley uh, wanted to do some outreach into another area, and they were looking for people that were unchurched, and so they went to another place, and they began a Sunday school. And uh, Harry Buer was invited to come to that Sunday school when he was just a child, and while he was there, he was reached with the gospel of Christ. A little bit later on, God called Harry into the ministry, and then he became a missionary to Africa. And then after that, he came back to the United States and became a church planner. And Berean Baptist Church is one of the churches that Harry Buer uh, helped to start. Now, you look back at that, and you see that, that this church got planted because there were some people in the, in the Central Valley of California that had a burden for others that were lost, and they just went and started a Sunday school. And from that, we have the Berean Baptist Church. Now, you could trace that back further if you wanted to. You could go and you could find out where those people came from and how they got saved, and there's a whole history that goes behind that. Or you can fast forward a little bit from the time of Harry Buer, and you begin to look at how uh, this church was started, and you think about who has passed through these doors, and and how is God using people that have been in Berean Baptist Church and other ministries and other places. For instance, we think about Tim Ekno. Uh, He was saved in this church, and he became a missionary to Southeast Asia and to India. Uh, Steve Cerna attended here for many years, and he was uh, in a Sunday school class here for quite some time and grew up in the church, and now he's a missionary in El Salvador. And then we have Brother Nick Graves with us tonight, and we think about him. Uh, I, I think 14 years in, in Brian Baptist Christian Academy and now finishing up uh, his education in Bible college. And uh, who knows how God's going to use him and, and, and to reach people somewhere around the world. Now, you see, God keeps these things going. God keeps the whole thing rolling along. Somebody on the other side of the world hears about Jesus Christ, and that person is saved because you brought your tithes and offerings to this church and enabled us to send a missionary to them. And so there's some person in India who got saved because of the support of Tim Ekno's ministry. Tim Ekno was saved because of the preaching of Berean Baptist Church. Uh, Berean Baptist Church got started out of the ministry of Harry Muir, who got started because there were some people in Central California who wanted to reach somebody with the gospel. 
Now you look at that and see where you are and what God has done, and you just have to step back and you have to think how marvelous that God is in his workings. He knows exactly what he's doing and where he's going to be at, at, at every particular point and, and what he needs to do for people. So somewhere, uh, somebody in the world hears the gospel, they're reached and they're helped because God has put everything into its place and he's called up the action at the exact time to make that happen when it needed to happen. Now that is what happened with Paul. He planted a church in Philippi that on God's cue found out where Paul was, that he had a need, and then through them God met that need. And again, when you think about that, how can you not stop and do what Paul says, unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Now let's bring that whole situation back down to you and let's see what God is doing with your life. If God has saved you, he has a purpose for your life. God doesn't save anybody just to let them drift and go off on their own. God must receive the glory. And so your salvation is for God's glory. So somewhere you're going to fit into God's plan. And you are going to fulfill some part of God's plan and purpose. And the thing about this is, God is going to take care of you so that you can. God's not going to let you go. He has a plan and purpose for your life, and so he's going to take care of what you need to fulfill that purpose. Now, you see what I'm saying here? There is no reason for us to fear or to fret. Uh, We have a sovereign God in control, and he has a purpose for us. Now, it's far and away from that drivel that you read in the purpose-driven life because God's purpose is not for for him to be your fairy godmother who, who makes all your wishes and all your dreams come true. It has nothing at all to do with whether you're happy or not happy or anything like that. This has to do with the will of God's purpose and what God determines to be done and about bringing glory to him. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, we know it well. Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. But your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now I want you to think about those verses in this vein. The fowls of the air, the lilies of the field, the grass of the field... They have no personal interest in God's eternal purpose. And yet God takes care of them. They're in no way connected to the conscious, personal uh, uh, adoration that's given to God through humanity. They're not a part of that. And the reasoning here is if God takes care of those, and yet tomorrow those things pass into nothingness, what is God going to do for you who are a part of his eternal purpose? So is God going to let you go? Is God going to take no thought for you? No, you've been saved for his eternal purpose. And if you latch on to that purpose, then you'll be content to wait on God to do whatever that God's going to do for you in order to fulfill that purpose. Now, I hope you see what I'm driving at here because you are never going to rise above and neither are you going to sink beneath your niche in God's eternal purpose. 
And so when Jesus says that your heavenly Father already knows what you have need of, that means that God has already considered all the contingencies that are out there. He's looked at all the different areas of his purpose and by whatever method that God deems best to take care of you and to supply your need, God is going to do it. Now, to get down to specifics and what uh, uh, God did with Paul, for Paul, it meant that in that age, in that year, in that month, in that week, on that day, and at that very hour, somebody showed up from Philippi with exactly what Paul needed. And why was it? Because it was in God's eternal purpose. Now, when you think about that, what do you do? Well, you do what Paul did. You put down the pen, you kind of rub your eyes a little bit in amazement, and then you just say, unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now that, friends, is the care of the Father. To God be the glory. Now having said all of that, I think we can move a little bit more quickly through the next ones. The next two are very closely related to number seven. Uh, Number eight is the capital of the Father. God has determined that he's going to take care of you because you fit into his eternal purpose. Now, I'm, of course, making no promises for those who uh, aren't believers. Uh, God has an eternal purpose for them, but it works in a much different way. They experience what we call God's common grace. And for a time, uh, they just receive an overflow of what God is doing for his own children. Now, the Scripture says, as we know, that God sends just, a rain on the just and on the unjust, and the unjust gets his rain because his field is next to the guy who's just. And that's a manner, in a manner of speaking, if you want to put it that way. It's just the overflow that spills out because God is taking care of his own children. Now, beyond that, God is not actively working in the welfare of those who don't know Christ. Now, as a believer in Christ, we we have to praise God because of his active participation in our lives. But an unbeliever must surely be miserable when he thinks about this because he's slated for destruction, just as the grass of the field that tomorrow is burned up, just like the lily of the field that eventually withers and dies, and just like the sparrow that eventually succumbs to the forces of nature. Now, you see those, again, all the smiley stickers with God loves you, And all is not as it seems. You see, anybody who thinks that God's love for the unjust is exactly equivalent to the love that he has for those who are sanctified and washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, if they think it's the same, it's not the same. You're seriously deluded if you think that. Common grace is in no way the same as saving grace. So here's God the Father, and he has this special, peculiar love For those that he's chosen and called and justified and sanctified. And those people have access to God's capital. That means what belongs to God belongs to them. There's an inheritance that we obtain by our faith in Christ. And the word of God says that we become joint heirs with Christ. And that's because we have become sons of God. We're adopted into God's family, which means that we have a right to the inheritance. Now listen to the way that Paul states this in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. He says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, and whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now, let me remark, first of all, about those verses that the inheritance, I believe, that he's speaking about there is heaven. It's a heavenly home. 
Now, according to God's purpose and grace, uh, that was before the world began, and according to the counsel of his will, uh, God has determined that we will have a part in this inheritance. But we note here that we've been talking about God's eternal purpose for our lives. I mean, we're living right now, and so all the things that are attendant to bring us to that final place where we receive God's inheritance of heaven has to take place in the life that we're living right now. God has to fulfill that in order to get us to the later. Now, that means, then, there is this life to be lived upon earth, and God, who owns everything in heaven, also owns everything that's here as well. And so during this time that we're here, we draw out of the abundance of God's capital. His wealth and abundance is the storehouse from which all of our temporal blessings flow. And when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, will God take care of your needs? Well, where does it come from? Physical life for the time that we're here has to be maintained as much as our spiritual life. And so God, if God has promised to sustain the physical life and the spirit or the spiritual life, then he also must sustain the, the, the physical life in order to get us to the place that we feel the part of God's purpose. Now, I hope that meshes in your mind. You get what I'm saying. Uh, to, to get the spiritual life through, you have to go through the physical life to get there. And so God has to take care of you here to fulfill his purpose. Now, I think that that thought is expressed very well in the song that uh, some of you may know. He giveth more grace. Let me me read the words to this. He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted the store of our endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources... Our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father, both thee and thy load, will upbear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Now listen to this particular part of it again. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. That's why Paul says, Unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, we come to the ninth reason why we glorify God. And I like this one. I like them all, but I like this one. The constancy of the Father. Or you might say it this way, the consistency of the Father. Now, this is that great attribute of God that we call his immutability. God says in the book of Malachi, I am the Lord, I change not. Now, that means that God is completely reliable because tomorrow God is not going to be different from what he is today. Now, Obama says change is good, and God says change is not so good. You see, when it comes to God, you don't want a God that changes. I mean, the constancy of God is that he never deviates from the purpose that he has determined. Now, there are a lot of contingent activities that go on around us, and it sometimes appears to us that God has changed directions or God is doing something differently and he's changed his mind about something. 
But when you see things in the big picture, everything is working underneath that one huge umbrella that will not fail to get where God wants it to go and to go where it was always going. Now, that's why I really don't have any problem believing in the Bible, believing doctrines like election and predestination of God. I mean, if it's okay for God to save somebody, then it's certainly okay for God to intend to save them. And uh, that's what the election of God is. It's nothing less than God or more than God's intention to save people. Now, our only alternative to that is to say that God has no plan, that God wakes up in the morning and he's winging it just every day. You know, it's something, something different, never quite sure what's going to happen. Well, if you have a God like that, then sure, you'd better be worried. I mean, you'd better bite your fingernails and furrow your brow and get very concerned because that means that you have no guarantees. But when God says, I change not, it means that there's nothing that ever happens that was not already God's intention. Now, I don't understand why anybody would argue against those sovereign and eternal purposes of God, because if you tried to defeat God's purpose in these many different doctrines, you brought down the guarantees of his promise. I mean, he said he's going to take all the redeemed home, and that carries all the way back from the very beginning. It was always God's intention. Now, if God can change his intent in one area, or if he has no intent, if he can change in any area, then his intentions mean nothing at all. Now, those who argue against the eternal security of the believer may be, may be ready to admit this, that, that God really doesn't exactly know what's going to happen in the end. We just have to wait and see how it all turns out. But a Bible-believing Baptist could never say anything like that. When you say that you believe in the eternal security of the believer, you'd better not admit that there's any lack of eternal purpose in God. Because if God is not constant, write off your salvation. Or at least you have to take the view that you're never going to know if you're saved until the day that you die. You can't know that you're going to heaven. So you're just going to have to wait and see, and, and you see what mood that God is in. And if he's in the right mood, then maybe you'll make it in. And if God's in the wrong mood, then you better put on your fiery tartan pajamas because you're going to need those. But we already know all of this, don't we? I mean, the Bible's already told us. We can know at this very moment that we're saved simply because of this consistency, the constancy, the immutability of God. John says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, do you see how all that works together? I mean, is it any wonder that when you, when you turn over so many scriptures, underneath of them you find the infallible, unchangeable, eternal purpose of God? You see, when Christ is called the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, how could we doubt that everything that flows out of that statement would be anything less than God working out the purpose for which Christ is the Lamb of God? slain from the foundation of the world. And what is that purpose? We all know it, don't we? It's the glory of God. And it includes the salvation of God's people. That just happens to be the highest expression of God's glory. If not that, then why is there humanity? Well, the very fact that there is humanity, that God has created us, means that God is going to get glory out of us in some way, so his glory is never left up to our decisions or our whims or our free will. I mean, could it be that God would create a world and uncertainty to the final outcome? And you see why that I've said many times before that to to take another view of it, uh, have another belief, is really a belief in a lesser God. You're not going to give God all the glory if you have reserved some of it for fallible man. You can't have both. 
And so the belief that man's will could be a deciding factor in salvation is really a belief in a lesser God. God deserves all the glory for every part of salvation. Now, finally then, uh, I mean, that, that I think all those are important, but we have reached now number 10 on the list. I mean, these are nine great reasons why I think that we ought to glorify God. I mean, creation, creatures, uh, the commission, the choice, the compassion, the communion, the care, the capital, the constancy, those are all reasons to glorify God the Father. But now we come to number 10, and this is the congregation of the Father. Now, what do I mean by congregation? Well, my reference is in Ephesians 1, verse 10, a verse I read a moment ago, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. Now, what is Paul referring to when he says, in the dispensation of the fullness of times? Dispensation means administration. Or sometimes people say it means stewardship. And what it refers to is a way that God works in a specifically defined period of time. Now here, the dispensation that Paul is referring to is something that we have referred to often in the study of the book of Revelation. And this is actually the time that all of creation, everything that God has made the world for, will reach its full purpose of its design. And that purpose, again, is glory. And that purpose is accomplished when God the Father has put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ. And that is in the everlasting kingdom of God. Now, when does that kingdom begin? Well, Revelation chapter 11 says, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So when is this dispensation of the fullness of times? Well, it begins, it commences with the millennial reign of Christ. And all the world is moving towards that great design of God. And that's when all the kingdoms of the world become the kingdoms of the Lord and of his Christ. And the congregation that I'm speaking here is of that great swelling throng of both men and angels who shout out the name of Jesus and bow down before him and worship him forever. This is when all enemies are defeated. Never again is Christ going to refrain from exercising his authority. Never again will anyone usurp the authority of God. I mean, Satan has been doing that for a long, long time. He's called the God of this world with a little g, but even that's going to be gone because there's only going to be one God, and that's one God with a big G, and all praise and glory and honor from every corner of the universe is going to go to the Lord Jesus Christ. All glory belongs to him. That's the dispensation of the fullness of times that we brought together in that great congregation when all worship the Lord God. Now, why then should we glorify the Father because of this? Well, the reason is he's the one who makes it all happen. Now, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, He talks about how uh, Christ brings about this eternal purpose in working with what God has given him to do. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. 
And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now here is this wonderful thought for those of us who are believers in Christ. We are going to be a part of that blood-washed throng. And we're going to sit there in the eternal presence of God and praise him forever and ever. And so it's no wonder that Paul stops in Philippians 4.20 and he says, Unto God and the Father uh, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now he gave us a glimpse of this already in the second chapter of Philippians. And there he was writing about the condescension of Christ. And then he turns around and speaks of his exaltation. Now remember in chapter 2, there's that downward progression. God stepping off the throne of glory. Jesus stepping off and then going down, down, down to the very lowest that he could possibly go, which is the death of the cross. But then things turn around and they start upward. And we know what Paul says here in Philippians 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the congregation of the Father, all of creation, everything in heaven, all things in earth, everything under the earth, bowing down at the feet of Jesus. And that is what brings about the ultimate glory of God. Now that's why all of us are here. It took us nine reasons to get to that one, but that's why all of us are here. That is why that God has worked all of these things after the counsel of his own will so that he predestined and he called and he justified and he will glorify you to get you to the point that you give him all the glory in that great throng that appears before the throne of God. And so we come to that doxology and we can say it with Paul, unto God and our Father, Be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's why we preach here. All glory belongs to God. We might as well get ready for it now. Start preparing for it now. Give him all the glory because he is certainly going to get it all later whether you want to give it or not. Now, I hope that you do want to give him the glory. That's why God created you. That's why you're his creature to give him the glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father... We are indeed thankful that you have sent Jesus into the world to save us from our sins, that you had an eternal purpose for us, and that from before the foundation of the world, you knew exactly what you planned to do. And we are so thankful, Lord, that you have brought us into that plan and purpose. And then, Lord, we are also thankful for the personal way that you interact with us, that you're not so far away that we can't call upon you and talk with you and Know that you understand our needs and are concerned about us. And we know, Lord, that you are going to take care of us because you do have that purpose for our lives. Uh, So, Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to look to you, not to worry, not to fear, because we know whatever purpose that you have for us, it will be fulfilled because that's the eternal plan. Lord, we just pray that you would bless our people and help us to understand this better. And may we worship you with all that we have. May we glorify you with all that we have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.